What's happening? Happy Friday to you and yours. Thanks for joining me. As always, it is very much appreciated. Theo Epstein returns to the Red Sox. Well, kind of. We'll get to that a little bit later on in the pod. We also did a breaking news podcast last night on Alex Van Pelt being hired as new offensive coordinator. If you want to check that out on the channel, it was the best podcast that we've ever done numbers-wise, and it continues to climb. So, again, you can check that out on the channel. We'll uh, have more on Van Pelt's that hire the offense coming up in this pod as well. But let's start here. Are the crafts cheaping out on Gerard Mayo, the front office, and you, the fans? I bring that up because Greg Bedard at Boston Sports Journal wrote over the past 24 hours that there are some sources concerned about the crafts and how they're approaching this offseason. Here's what Bedard wrote. People in league circles wonder how serious the crafts are at doing what needs to be done to reboot this franchise after Bill Belichick. Basically, this boils down to money. Now, Judge Judy would tell Greg there is no basically. Now that Belichick and his beliefs and how an organization should be structured have left the building, shouldn't the Patriots be modernizing their operations? League sources believe the crafts want to keep everything how it is, i.e. at the same spending level. That means no expansions to the coaching staffs, no beefed-up analytics department to keep up with most of the league, no revamp of the personnel department, cap management, or sports science. Areas where other teams think they're gaining an edge in today's game. Now, my first reaction is I'm a little confused by this math. It doesn't really add up to me. And what I mean by that is Bill Belichick was making about $25 million per year. We know for a fact that Mayo is not making close to $25 million per year. So it stands to reason if the Patriots are going to use the same spending on the football staff, front office, et cetera, then they should have a lot of money left over from Bill Belichick. And Bill Belichick, yes, paid some of that staff, but still, Bill is going to make a lot more than Gerard is going to make. So what happens with that extra money? Do you not allocate that to other necessities within the football program. So when you look at it, Belichick, $25 million. Let's say Mayo, I don't know. I'm going to throw a number out there. It's probably way too high. We know Harbaugh's making $16 million a year. Let's say Mayo's making $8 million a year. That's $17 million in difference. Now, some of that money goes to the staff. But what about the extra millions of dollars? Are you not adding that money to the staff? If you're telling me the Crafts are going to spend the same amount of money on football operations this year as they did last year, but you account for the difference between how much it's going to cost you to pay the head coach, then it stands to reason that you're going to add some of that money towards the staff and towards the front office. And wasn't I told by many reporters out there that Jonathan Kraft's philosophy was that he actually believes in analytics, that he believes pushing this team forward. So which is it? Does Jonathan Kraft have a lot of say within how this team is going to be run or he doesn't? Because it seems to me that some people have to choose a lane here. If you're telling me that Kraft is going to nudge his nose into football operations and you're telling me that Kraft believes in analytics and pushing sports science forward, then you can't sit back and tell me that they're not going to spend money or devote anything to sports science and or analytics if you're telling me Jonathan Kraft has something to do with it. So you can't have it both ways. Now let's look into the analytics department. I believe that the more information that you get, the more intelligence that you get, the better. 
I want all of the information. I don't think that you just believe wholly in one thing, right? That you just look at analytics and say, we're going to be an analytical team. That's going to drive us. That's how we're going to win football games. I think you mix old school, new school. I've always believed that. Gather as much information as you can and then make the best decisions for your football team. It's not one or the other. It's not old school or analytics. We can marry those two things together. There is a thing called synergy, and I think you could have that. So the more intel, the more info, the better. If you're telling me that you have extra money, if you have money to spend in the analytics department, then do it because I want all of the analytics I can get. If 5% of the analytical information that I get makes me a better football team, then I'm happy with the analytics being a part of what I do every single day. But I also think that there's not one right way to win. And people sometimes equate certain things with winning. Certain people will look and say, oh, well, the Patriots aren't winning as much because they don't have a beefed up analytical department. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. Seth Walder from ESPN posted a graphic on Twitter slash X the other day. He wrote, as always, this is to the best of my understanding based on both what teams list and conversations with analytics folks around the league. And what Walder did was he looked at all of the analytical departments and spoke to people and said, this is how many employees each team devotes to analytics and research. What did that tell us? Didn't tell us much, frankly. The Patriots have one person working in their analytics department. Hello to Richard Miller. Good old Dickie Miller, director of research. Hi, Dick. How you doing? So they've got one employee in analytics, Richard Miller. But it's not like every team in the NFL is full of these analytics people. The Rams, you know how many people the Rams have in their analytics department? Two. You know how many people the Lions have? Two. Last time I checked, the Lions were just in the NFC Championship game. How many analytical people do you think Miami employs? Two. How about Kansas City? Two. They just lost one. They really had three. So when you look at analytics and how it plays a role in the league, it doesn't really tell you that the more analytical people that you have, the more successful you're going to be. I just named the Chiefs, Miami, the Lions, the Rams, Cincinnati. They only have two analytical people in their front office. Green Bay has only three. Pittsburgh has only one. So there are plenty of other teams in the NFL that are not spending a ton of money on analytics, but are winning consistently and getting to the playoffs on a consistent basis. Now, some teams go bananas. Cleveland has nine people. Buffalo has five. San Francisco has five. Dallas has six. But the Giants stink out loud. They have six people in that department. Jacksonville has eight. You get the point. As far as revamping the personnel department, Elliot Wolf being the number one guy, which I think is happening, and I think that was proven more last night with the Alex Van Pelt hire. Van Pelt has that link with Wolf from their days in Green Bay. I think it's rather obvious that Elliot Wolf was a driving force behind the new offensive coordinator. So if you have Wolf as the number one guy, is that not a change? Is that not a revamp of personnel? Belichick was the guy that was running the whole ship. I mean, just removing Belichick from the equation is a dramatic change in everything that building does. Removing the guy who was at the masthead for 24 years, making every decision, free agency, draft, et cetera, 
removing that guy is huge. That in itself is revamping the personnel department. Now, have they brought people in from the outside? Not yet. But let's remember what Robert Kraft said at the introductory press conference of Gerard Mayo. He said, we are going to bring somebody in as the number one. We're going to appoint somebody is the specific wording he used. So I would say right now that looks like it's going to be Elliot Wolf who will be appointed as the number one guy to make those decisions coming up in free agency and the draft to have the final call along with Gerard Mayo. And after the draft, I think we'll see at least one, if not a couple of people added to this front office. Kraft did tell us that they're going to look at the marketplace. They're going to look at external candidates. Gerard Mayo reportedly has spoken to external candidates. So I think saying they're not going to revamp the front office on February 2nd is a little too premature. And I would also say there has been some revamping with Elliot Wolf being in that spot, having that kind of power. Don't forget to give us that thumbs up. Every thumb means an awful lot. More likes means more eyeballs. We've had the busiest week to my count on this podcast this week with all of the breaking news, all of the conversation. And it's because of you. You watch, you listen, but you also like, comment, and subscribe. We're getting closer and closer to 1,750 subscriptions. I wanted to hit it by Valentine's Day. Let's hit it by this weekend. And if you're listening on Spotify and Apple Pods, don't forget to rate and review. But that like is huge to this operation on YouTube. So give us that thumbs up. It only takes a second of your time. All right, let's get back to Greg Bedard, wondering if you know the crafts and league sources telling him are the crafts cheaping out on this thing. I don't think the math adds up. As I said earlier, I think analytics is a little overblown when you look at other front offices. There's more than one way to do things. And I, I think the personnel department has already had a dramatic shift with Belichick being out. Cap management is crucial. And I do think that is a part of the game that the Patriots have fallen back on. When you look at these other teams, they have these void years at the end of deals. They move the money around more than the Patriots do. I think there is more of a way to manipulate the cap than the Patriots have manipulated it in the past. I don't think the, the cap is crap because I do think eventually those things come home to roost and you become a team like the Saints who just continue to age and have tens of millions of dollars minus on the cap this year. Again, I think they're like minus 82 million on the cap and they're not getting any better. So I, I think there's the pushback on that argument. But when you look at the cap management, it has been failing the last several years to catch up with the times. And I like to see that happen. Sports science, to me, that's on the margins thing. Remember Chip Kelly when he went to Philadelphia? I remember reading all those stories about Chip Kelly joining the Eagles and how he was going to change the sports. Every player had their own drink. And it was it was specific to that player's, you know, levels as far as all these scientific terms. And it was a whole thing. And how long did Chip Kelly last as a head coach of the Eagles? Not too long. So sports science can help. I don't think that it's as big of a deal as some people make it out to be. Back to Bedard. He writes about the lack of evolution within the Patriots building says it had an adverse effect on the search for an offensive coordinator 
as has their underwhelming process with candidates during interviews. Two named candidates told colleagues their Patriots interview ranked last in their experience by far. I remind you, I said this last night on the pod. I loved the idea of somebody like Alex Van Pelt and what he brings, his qualifications to this job. I do have to wonder, however, he was the 12th option here. They interviewed 11 guys. They interviewed two of those 11 twice. And then all of a sudden, Van Pelt entered into the picture. And it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, was Van Pelt brought in because others said thanks, but no thanks? Was Van Pelt brought in because the search became desperate? I hope we get those answers through some reporting eventually. And again, we will have a lot more on Alex Van Pelt and the offense coming up in a couple of minutes. How about the head coaching process? Bedard wrote, as some of us have asked, why didn't they open up the process? Yes, you can say they knew they had the right guy in Mayo. You can also say that if the Patriots did open it up and basically make Mayo a free agent, it could have gotten more expensive to re-sign him just like a player. It's fair to ask what the Kraft's true end game is modernize their football ops from top to bottom or just to move on from Belichick in the most cost-effective fashion. The Crafts decided not to put their money where their mouth is on the head coach or the personnel department to date with the deadline to franchise a player 33 days, days away and the start of free agency 39 days away. So Bedard leaves with that question. You know, were the Crafts just happy to move on from Belichick or do they want to truly evolutionize this organization and evolve in certain ways. And if they're not willing to do that, if they're not willing to spend that money to evolve the business, then what are we even doing? Here's what I would say to the idea of the crafts, not spending, not evolving and how that will impact the organization. Here's the good thing with Belichick gone. He can no longer be the scapegoat. This is going to fall on the crafts. Now we know, right? You could lay all of the decisions on Belichick. You can blame him for everything, but now he's gone. So no longer Belichick the scapegoat walking around the hallways. And I'm not saying he was just a scapegoat. Again, he made plenty of terrible decisions. We know that, especially the last few years. But when a bad decision is made now, who are you going to blame? You know, I'm sure that Gerard Mayo is not balancing the checkbook, folks. Belichick did. Mayo's not worried about the bills. <laughs> he's worried about the staff. So Mayo's not balancing the checkbook. You can't blame Belichick for personnel decisions anymore or being cheap on certain personnel. Can't do that. And you can't blame Belichick for not evolving and not creating a, a new, fresh front office approach because that opportunity lies in front of the crafts right now. And if that doesn't happen, it's on the crafts and nobody else. A reminder. This offseason, they have to spend money on free agency because they have to get to the salary cap floor. So when we talk about spending, we're not talking about spending on players and spending in free agency, spending on bringing some of your players back that are free agents. We're talking about spending money on the coaching staff, the front office, and other pieces of the personnel department. Rick Avocado jumps in. Nick Cattles for the number two in the analytics department. Maybe take some snaps at quarterback if we have to stick with Mac. I appreciate the super chat, Rick. I can't say enough for people that send super chats. Again, that is your way to jump to the front of the line. And you can also contribute financially to the program and contribute to me. I'm a one-man band, as I say here. So I appreciate that, Rick. I don't know if I'm the number two analytics guy. 
if there was somebody in the media that I'd push for, it either be Phil Perry or Evan Lazar. Those are the two guys that kind of make me feel that would be their neck of the woods. And as far as quarterback, here's one thing. I have a terrible arm. My arm sucks. I played first base, playing baseball growing up. I have a terrible arm. I have a, a much weaker arm than Mac Jones. Trust me. You know that throw he made in Germany against the Colts? I, I couldn't even make that throw. That's how bad the arm is. I don't know if it's mechanics. I don't know. Some people are born with it. I wasn't born with it. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Trying to get to 1,750 subscriptions by Valentine's Day. All right, Red Sox, Theo Epstein, back in business. We'll talk about that coming up in a bit. But first, let's talk more about Alex Van Pelt in this offensive staff. So Chad Graff of The Athletic reported this morning that Josh McDaniels was not considered for the offensive coordinator gig. That's interesting, right? So that really shows us that Gerard Mayo was motivated to not go with the same old, same old. Bill O'Brien, you're gone. You go to Ohio State. McDaniels, you were never even considered. Again, that's according to Chad Graff. So all of the stories about McDaniels maybe being a part of this offensive system and maybe being an assistant head coach, if Graff is true here, and Mayo never looked at McDaniels as somebody who could run this offense, if that's the case, then that tells me all of those stories came from Josh McDaniels or people that knew McDaniels and they were working overtime to get his name out there. So Chad Graff says that Gerard Mayo did not consider McDaniels. And I actually tend to believe that because look at who Mayo interviewed. He interviewed people from West Coast offenses and Shanahan and McVay and Kubiak and those systems. More on Alex Van Pelt. Some might ask, why did Alex Van Pelt get tossed from Cleveland? Burt Breer was on Boston Sports tonight last night. Uh, he said that when you talk to people in Cleveland, they feel like Kevin Stefanski wasn't the one that fired Van Pelt. They feel that the Haslams, who obviously own the Browns, and Paul D. Podesta, the ace in the front office, were the ones that did it because they didn't feel like they were getting enough out of Deshaun Watson. I know the reaction on that staff when it happened. They were shocked. And they are a little worried right now. Kevin Stefanski is a little more of a flatline personality. Alex was the glue guy on that staff. Outgoing. Brought people together. Unified everybody. And when you look at this New England staff, there is a common theme. When you look at it, this New England staff that Mayo has built doesn't have ego. They have great vibes and great energy, and they are philosophically, excuse me, philosophically aligned. And they also connect with the players. Player connection is going to be gigantic within this staff. You're going to hear Mayo talk about it constantly. You're going to hear Covington and Alex Van Pelt talk about it. They believe that you first connect with the player. If you connect with the player, you get more from that player. That's what they believe. Mark Daniels on Mass Live wrote, wrote about Alex Van Pelt's relationship with his quarterbacks in the past. Back in 2018, Aaron Rodgers was upset that Green Bay didn't retain Van Pelt. He was on ESPN's Golick and Wingo, and he said that he thought the Packers' offseason coaching changes were, quote-unquote, strange. Quote, well, my quarterback coach didn't get retained. I thought that was an interesting change, really, without consulting me. <laughs> Love that. That's typical Rodgers, without consulting me. There's a close connection between quarterback and quarterback coach, and that was an interesting decision. Greg Bedard wrote last night at BSJ, 
that Van Pelt is known as a player-friendly coach. That's what you've heard, right? Mayo, player-friendly. Covington, player-friendly. Jeremy Springer, same thing. Van Pelt, same thing. Bedard wrote, his quarterbacks love him. He's a nurturer. He's known as a very good quarterback coach. And that was one of the major boxes that had to be checked with this job. The idea that if you're going to draft a young quarterback, you're going to develop that guy, make sure you have somebody on this staff that has worked with quarterbacks. And Van Pelt was a quarterback and has worked with quarterbacks a ton. It should be mentioned, too, that Van Pelt's role with Cleveland, very similar to Mayo's role as linebackers coach here in New England. Obviously, different sides of the football, but that role was very, very similar. So when you look at what Van Pelt did in Cleveland, he didn't call the plays on game day. He had two or three games that he did call the plays during COVID, a playoff game as well. But Alex Barth at 98.5 wrote this, more goes into being an OC than calling plays. They lead the design of the base offense. They work on incorporating the skill sets of certain players and oversee the installation of that offensive system. That's true for the full year, but also when it comes to tailoring the offense to face certain opponents on a week-to-week basis. And that's important when you think about how the season went last year for Cleveland. Van Pelt is leading the meetings. He's game planning. He's helping the install. This is a team that had five different starting quarterbacks last year. So every time a quarterback came in, Van Pelt had to structure that offense during the week and game plan that offense around that quarterback. Try to hide the weaknesses and accentuate the strengths. So they had five different starting quarterbacks. They were down to like their fourth or fifth offensive tackle. Nick Chubb had that catastrophic injury. He was lost. And Alex Van Pelt, along with Kevin Stefanski, kept things together. So that's important. So now we jump to AVP staff. And the next in line, the next biggest hire to me is obvious. It's the offensive line coach. Before we get into that, give us that thumbs up. Don't forget to like the program. It helps us an awful lot. Takes a second of your time. Comment and subscribe. Spotify, Apple Pods, rate and review. Mike Reese last night posted that the Patriots are targeting Andy Dickerson. Here was Mark Daniels on Mass Live about Andy Dickerson. By targeting Dickerson, it's another sign the Patriots are moving to a West Coast system. He worked on Sean McVay's staff, coaching the offensive line for four seasons before going to Seattle. He worked with Shane Waldron's staff. Waldron became the Seattle offensive coordinator after working as McVay's pass game coordinator in L.A. Most recently, Dickerson was the Seahawks offensive run game coordinator and offensive line coach after joining the team in 21 under Pete Carroll. Before that, he spent the bulk of his coaching career with the Rams, where he was the team's assistant offensive line coach for eight seasons, from 2012 to 2020. Now, my friend Greg Bedard, the wet blanket, (laughs) posted this last night on BSJ. Seattle's offensive line was thought to be a a strength. Their rookie tackles did a nice job a year ago under Dickerson, but the unit was a major issue this year. Seattle and the Patriots were tied at 27th in the league and pro football focuses pass blocking efficiency this season. So here's what we learned, okay? Many people were wondering, does Gerard Mayo have an idea what he wants to do offensively? Does he have a plan? What's the philosophy? I think now that we look back, it's obvious. We put these pieces together. Gerard Mayo, first and foremost, 
he was fixated on moving away from the Earhart Perkins old school, old ass Patriots offense. And we know that because he interviewed 12 different people. And every single one of those 12 people had links to the West Coast offense, most part, right? He went outside of the building. He interviewed all of these guys that were linked with Shanahan, McVeigh, and Kubiak. So it's obvious that Mayo, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to move away from the old offense, and he wanted to move to a more quarterback-friendly, player-friendly West Coast scheme. It's obvious. So that was the plan. That was the philosophy. That is Mayo's vision of what this should be here in New England offensively. West Coast, easier on everybody involved. Simplify things. Strip them down a little bit. And so when you make that decision that you're going to move away from the old school offense and you're moving towards a West Coast offense, it only stands to reason to go out there and get somebody who's experienced in, I don't know, the West Coast system. Remember Belichick tried to go to the Shanahan offense in 2022, but he picked Matt Patricia and Joe Judge to install that offense? We all know how that ended up. So go out there and get somebody who knows what this offense is. Experience with the scheme, and Van Pelt is that. Then you go to offensive line coach. You don't get a random offensive line coach. You get an offensive line coach who understands the scheme. And if it is going to be Dickerson, he has a background with the scheme, and he's also specialized in the run game. And this run game is going to be different, right? Wide zone versus going straight downhill. So when you start to put these pieces together, the puzzle actually makes sense. After some people were losing their minds the last couple of weeks, we weren't here, right? I told you, let's not go crazy just yet. Let, let's see what happens as far as who the OC is. And if they hire somebody before early next week, I'm not worried about the timeline. Well, here we are. Fast forward a couple of weeks, right? As some people were screaming and ranting and raving, here we are with an offensive system that is known with an experienced offensive coordinator at the helm with that offensive scheme, targeting offensive line coach that knows how to coach the offensive line within that scheme. It actually makes sense. Like, comment, subscribe, send a super chat if you want to jump to the front of the line and contribute to the show. Now, what should we expect from this offense? Get ready for motion. Get ready for jet sweeps, baby. Phil Perry wrote about what Shanahan does offensively. Uh, per ESPN Stats and Info, San Francisco ranked third in the NFL this season with the player motioning at the snap. So the third most motion in the NFL pre-snap and at the snap, you had San Francisco. The two teams ahead of San Francisco, McVay's Rams and the Miami Dolphins with Mike McDaniel. So we should expect a lot of motion if Van Pelt is going to try to push the West Coast system because, remember, he was under Mike McCarthy in Green Bay for a number of years. Many will tell you, oh, he's going to go old school. I'm not sold on that. He worked with Stefanski for four years. Stefanski is from the Kubiak tree. There are links to McVay. There are links to Shanahan. There are links to Kubiak all throughout Van Pelt's career. So I don't think it's going to be just the same old, same old. So I would get ready for some motion. And motion, by the way, is not all about the passing game. 
According to Sports Info Solutions, this was from Phil Perry. The Niners ranked first in the league in their number of run game snaps using motion. They placed fifth in the league in terms of passing plays that utilized motion. So motion running, motion passing. Confuse the defense. Chad Graff, the Browns were 11th this season using 11 personnel, which was three wide receivers, right? 11 personnel is three wideouts. They were 7th in their usage of play action. So put all of these pieces together. A lot of motion at the snap. A lot of motion at the snap, whether it's passing or running. A lot of three wides, a lot of 11 personnel. And they used a lot of play action in Cleveland this year. So those are the elements to this offense that we're going to watch. The offense is not going to rely on RPOs, zone read schemes. That's not really what this offense does. And a lot of times, the quarterback will be under the center. When San Francisco runs their motion, Brock Purdy is mostly under center. The Niners were fourth in the NFL in under center handoffs, 13th in the NFL in under center drop back pass attempts. So quarterback under center, a decent amount, a decent amount of play action. Get ready for some sweep, jet sweep motion at the snap and get ready for this offense to try to confuse opposing defenses by giving a lot of same looks, but different actions within those looks. That's what you get ready for. And of course, now that we know what this offensive system is, as we talked about, Mayo wants to go West Coast. You go find an offensive coordinator with experience in the West Coast offense. You're now targeting an offensive lineman experienced in that same offense. Now what do you do? Now you can target players that fit that offense. That's the next step. The front office down at the Senior Bowl, the scouting department, Elliot Wolf looking at free agency. Now you start to look at players that will be available to you and how they fit the system that Alex Van Pelt wants to run. So number one, you got to find a quarterback who's comfortable under center. Number two, you've got to find wide receivers that are big, physical, and love to block. That is a big part of this system. Again, they run the football, and your wide receivers have to be willing to block. So look for bigger, more physical receivers. Debo Samuel is a physical receiver. George Kittle, physical tight end. Kyle Juszczyk, physical. So you find guys that can block because the other part of it is, the other part of it is, again, snap motion, passing, or, or running. You want to throw the defense off. The other part of that is if you have receivers who can block and they can catch, now it's incredibly difficult for the defense to figure out what the hell you're going to do play to play because you're not really giving anything up at the snap of the football. You've got motion during run plays. You've got motion during pass plays. You've got receivers who can catch the football and that can block. You've got tight ends that can catch the football and they can block. So you have no idea. Is this a run look? Is this a pass look? So that's the great part of this system and how things open up for the quarterback. Because what you're doing is you're trying to deceive 
the defense by these looks. A lot of it looks the same, and then all of a sudden, it's a completely different play than you anticipated. And that opens up the middle of the field. That opens up guys for the quarterback, and they open up rather quickly, which is why this system is good for the quarterback. So you need tight ends and wide receivers that can block and catch. You put all of that together, and there you have it. All right, let's look at some of these uh, comments. Scott Lake, and I can't wait to see what the draft room looks like this year. How many people will be in there? Will it be more lively when they make a pick? That'll be interesting. You know, will you have seven, eight, nine guys? Of course, everybody will be looking to see if Jonathan Kraft is in the room. Is Robin Glazer in the room? <laughs> We're going to have like Zapruder films all over Twitter. Should be great. Should be fantastic. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ian says, aren't they still paying Bill this year? Yeah, they they had to come to a settlement because he was still under contract. But what I would say to that, Ian, is uh, you're still looking at what you're spending on the operation this year. And so, you know, I I don't think it's a case where, okay, now we're paying Belichick. we got to take that money out of the till. At least I don't think. If it is, it's a fantastic point by you. And maybe that extra money that they would have made between Belichick and Mayo The crafts are saying, well, that's a sunken cost this year. And if they're doing that, that sucks out loud. But we'll see if that's what they're doing. MJ Witt says, this crap is Belichick minions trying to poison the well with the new regime. Get this bleep out of here. There is a lot of salty tears. (laughs) There is a lot of, there is a lot of wah-wah going on. You know, I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. This idea of, oh, this isn't going right. They're not doing it. It's so like Mac Jones showing up at the press conference and people taking shots at Mac through the media. Like, who cares? Who cares if Mac Jones was at the press conference? He was in the building. He was working out. Who cares? I don't get it. Jawan Bentley was there. Other players were there. But let's single out Mac. It's just, it's this obsession from some people who are leaking things to the media to make Mac look awful. And I'm not talking about his on-the-field stuff. It's just this petty, this pettiness that has reeked. Get it all out. And, and I think that's part of the reason why Mayo is looking outside of the building, aside from the guys that he trusts, like Demarcus Covington. Let me go out and get a new special teams coordinator. Let me go out and spend the money and bring in an Alex Van Pelt, somebody outside of the system. It was too much, you know, pointing fingers and stuff at the end. And that really hasn't changed. So I've just had enough of all of that, honestly. Enough of it. Edward says, from what I have heard, Nick, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were very interested in Van Pelt for their offensive coordinator job. Yes, they interviewed him. And uh, Tampa is now moving to Liam Cohen. You wonder if Tampa... After Van Pelt said thanks, but no thanks to Tampa, if that's what happened, they moved to Cohen. So 
again, I, I've also heard this before we move on. And cool, genuine Phil. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Phil. Uh, I've also heard this from multiple people. And, and I just want to make sure that everybody knows this. There are multiple people out there saying that Van Pelt has never called plays. That is factually inaccurate. Now, I'm not telling you he has this long, extensive experience of calling plays. I'm not telling you he's, you know, Josh McDaniels or Bill O'Brien or any of these other guys. I'm not telling you that. But to say that he's never called plays is BS. And I'm not sure why certain people are saying that. I'm talking about people in the media. I don't know if it's a lack of research, a lack of homework, or they're trying to mislead you, or or they're suffering from hyperbole. I don't know what it is. But the fact is, Alex Van Pelt has called plays. He did it in 2005 in Frankfurt as part of NFL Europe. He did it in 2009 with the Buffalo Bills for one season. Chan Gailey was not there. Chan Gailey was not a part of the coaching staff at that time. So he called plays in 2009 with Buffalo. And he called two or three games with Cleveland. One or two games because of COVID. He also called the playoff game. So he has called plays on game day. If you've heard he hasn't, that is not true. It's not factual. Not the case. So I just, I wanted to make sure that I settle that. Because as fans, y'all need the information. And it's it's my job and, and others' jobs to try to give you the right information so you know what's happening with your football team. All right, let's quickly hit Theo Epstein. This came out today. Sportico, Brennan Coffee, Theo Epstein. Don't forget, by the way, like, comment, and subscribe. All the likes, all the thumbs up, they mean the world to us. That's how the traffic builds. That's how the community builds, and that's why we're getting better numbers with all of these views. It's because of you. So don't forget to like. Don't forget to throw in a comment, and we're looking for your subscription, trying to get to 1750 by Valentine's Day. I appreciate every one of you. Back to Sportico, Brennan Coffey. Theo Epstein returning to the Red Sox, taking part ownership of Fenway Sports Group and joining in the role of senior advisor. Epstein will work on sports initiatives across the business's holdings, which includes Liverpool FC, the Pittsburgh Penguins, RFK Racing, TGL's Boston Common Golf, and a recently acquired stake in the PGA Tour, in addition to the Red Sox. The special advisor role is part-time, allowing Epstein to continue as an operating partner to sports-focused private equity group Arctos Partners, which has an investment in FSG, by the way. On the baseball side, which is what all of you and, and myself are worried about, Epstein says he'll act as a sounding board and executive coach, if needed, to the Red Sox baseball operations people. Notably, he hired Craig Breslow while with the Cubs. Epstein said of Breslow, quote, I'm a full believer in him and what he and his team are going to mean for the Red Sox. So, couple things. Number one, he's part-time. Not like Theo's going to live at Fenway. He's part-time. The words that Theo used, soundboard, coach. Right now, at least publicly, Theo is making it a point, I am not going to make the decisions. Now, is that because he doesn't want to usurp the decision-making from Craig Breslow? Is it because he's kind of slow playing this thing? I don't know. But he's telling us he's going to be a soundboard, he's going to be a coach, and he's going to work part-time. It does not sound like Theo is taking over the baseball operations. That is not this job. That's being explained to us. So on the surface, 
it doesn't look like Theo is taking any power away from Sam Kennedy. And it looks like Theo's aspirations are bigger than baseball, are bigger than the Red Sox. He's talking ownership. He's talking about being a senior executive. He's talking about working with multiple sports across the board. So that's what we're being told. My question is this. Here's the million-dollar question. How much will Theo try to influence those who make the decisions? If Theo's not running baseball ops, which he's not, but he's involved as an advisor, that's kind of a funny term. Some advisors are involved with much more than you would think. Other advisors act as consultants. They're outside the circle. They got their feet up somewhere. So the million-dollar question is, how much will Theo try to influence Sam Kennedy? How, how much will he try to influence John Henry? How much will he try to influence Craig Breslow? Will Theo Epstein push Sam Kennedy and John Henry and say, look, in my role, I've done this job. I've won World Series. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to win baseball games, you got to go out and you got to get stars. Enough of this payroll stuff. How serious is Theo going to be willing to push? That's what I want to know. Will he push them on spending and say, hey, I'm, I'm a part owner of this group now. I think we've got to spend more money on the Red Sox. And I think that has to start now because don't get it twisted. Theo Epstein knows that stars win baseball games. Look at his track record. So how much is Theo willing and able to influence the other people that are more intricately involved in the operation? Will Theo push Breslow to try to, you know, manipulate, move Kennedy, Henry, and Werner towards spending more money? Breslow and Theo have a great relationship, right? Again, Theo hired Breslow. So does Theo consult Breslow on how to approach Kennedy and Henry to maybe, maybe be more successful at getting more money out of them? So advisor, this could be just all PR. This could be a Red Sox PR thing, right? Corbin Burns just got dealt to Baltimore. The Yankees have added Soto. And others, you look at the Blue Jays, they just signed Justin Turner, who was very popular here in Boston. This could be a, a fantastically timed PR move by the Fenway Sports Group to announce Theo being part of it to make Red Sox fans feel better. That is absolutely a possibility here. It might even be a probability. However, advisor, again, is very fluid. And if Theo is at Fenway, if he's involved and he's having conversations, how aggressive is he going to be? And how much is he going to try to influence the philosophy of the Red Sox ownership of the Red Sox front office? Is he going to be aggressive? Is he going to walk in there and say, we got to get talent? That's the question. And I don't know the answer. All right. A couple more chats here. Let's jump into it. Amstel 54. Nick Cattles is my GM. I don't think that'd be a great move. I mean, I take the gig. I'm unemployed. Do you think they'd allow me to continue to do this podcast? <laughs> Probably not, right? Probably not. Jeff Pallion says, how many top quarterbacks are pure pocket passers? Not many. Not anymore. The league is evolving. And you need some athletes. 
but you do have guys. I mean, if you look at if you look at some of the success this year, I mean, Joe Flacco was fantastic in Cleveland's offense. He's a pocket passer. Jared Goff is a pocket passer, right? Brock Purdy is mostly a pocket passer. I know he can run. He's more agile and mobile than people think. And I, I worked in Sacramento uh, last football season, so I watched the Niners and I watched Purdy. He's more athletic than people give him credit for. But there are there are some examples to a tongue of Iowa in Miami, pocket passer. Um, so there are some of those guys. And you marry that system with that quarterback, and it tends to work out pretty well. So we got some draft stuff in here. We got Patriots Loco. Hope we get May over Daniels. Daniels needs a lot more work as a passer at the next level. He doesn't always see things from what I read. Look, I'm not an expert. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I broke down the, the, the Jaden Daniels film. I watch college football an awful lot. I am a college football fan. But from what I know of Daniels, yeah, his, his processing isn't the greatest at all times. He's good outside the numbers, good with the deep ball, great touch, the deep ball, electric athlete. So there we have it. Uh, Rich Don 8, love your podcast. So reasoned and well thought out. That's what I try to do, Rich, and I appreciate the comments, man. I really do, and the compliments. means an awful lot to me. All right, it's Friday. Have yourself a good damn time this weekend. I don't know if you're into beverages. If you are, well, I mean, everybody's into beverages. I don't know if you're into drinking beers, but if you are, have some good beers today, today and, and this weekend and enjoy the craft beer scene. I'm going to be going out with the wife later on. Got my brother coming up tomorrow. We're going to have a good weekend. Everybody have a fantastic weekend. Enjoy yourself. Be safe. Don't be knuckleheads. Eh? Don't be knuckleheads. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. If something breaks, as proven by last night, I will true my, try my damnedest to break it and cover it here. Uh, but everybody have a great weekend. Until Monday, thank you again. One of the busiest weeks we've had. Upward and onward here with the Nick Cattle Show because of all of you. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday at 11 a.m. Mark it on the calendar.